As I was saying, good morning. Good, good to see you. I think we have, uh, probably my guess is 60% of our congregation is out of town visiting family, and uh, we are thrilled to have so many of you coming in <laughs> to visit family. It is good to have you and a pleasure to be able to worship together uh, with one another and, and just enjoy this time in which we can uh, share our love uh, for God. I'm going to begin this morning with, uh, with something a little different than we have talked about. I think an appropriate time to do so, something I think about a lot in, in my life. And that is taking a look at the contrast between faith and doubt. Now, don't sit there and think that you never have doubts. Of course you do. And uh, don't ever think that that's a terribly bad thing. Of course it isn't. If you are, uh, if you are really naive, you wouldn't think about it. <laughs> you would say, oh, well... Of course, I remember mommy and daddy telling me that there was a Jesus and there was a God and I just never turned back. Oh, come on. Of course you did. And there's lots of times when those things happen. I'd like to introduce this just by relating to you the 22nd, 24th chapter of the book of Acts. There is a, an, an interesting incident that if you've been a Christian very long, you are aware of. In Acts 24, when Paul had been taken and first imprisoned, the scripture says in verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was afraid. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. You ever sat and wondered what that was like for Felix? Felix, we know historically, was a bad guy. He was a murderer. He had done many, many terrible things in his life. He's eventually recalled by, uh, by uh, the Roman emperor Nero, because of the wickedness that he had practiced. What was it like that moment when Felix sat and listened to Paul reason with him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment? For a brief moment, Felix was afraid. It hit him somewhere deep in his soul for a second, and he was afraid. But very quickly, he threw those fears away and went back to his old life. I sympathize with Felix. You know, we put him down and we tell, talk about what a, what a bad person he was for not considering this more. But I sympathize with Felix. Because it is easy to think the way he thought. Look at what I have to give up. Look at the life I'm going to have to live if I turn and be, decide to follow Jesus. There's going to be a lot of changes I'm going to have to make. Most importantly, maybe there's just responsibilities that are going to stand above all other things that I ever do. 
This is not just change what I do on Sunday morning. This is hour by hour, minute by minute, day by day, living with my eyes in an entirely different place, my life in a different way, my relationships completely changed. Everything is going to change. I sympathize with the decision. I remember making that very decision and giving up many, many things that I loved, enjoyed doing, but weighed it out and decided it was not worth what the result was going to be. Should you be a Christian? You might think, well, are you preaching this to people who aren't Christians? I am not, but I hope that I touch some who are, who are not Christians. But I'm preaching about us, and I'm talking about us. Do you ever, if you are older, and if you're not, you could look up some of those great old cartoons in which a little devil sat on one shoulder and a little angel sat on the other shoulder and the little devil is saying, go do this, go do this, go do this. And the little angel over here says, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I've had the little devil on my shoulder many times and so have you. And it is interesting to think of it that way and there are times early in the morning I wake up and I think, is this all really true? I mean, come on. Is this all really true? Am I living this way because there really is a God and there really is a Jesus and he really did come to the earth and he really did die and most importantly, that he has actually said, few there be that find it. Really? And you know what happens when those things happen to me? I have to start all over again. I have to. I have to step back and start the process all over again of why I believe. And I start in the very, very beginning of it. Have you ever done that? I would like you to take a journey with me this morning. I'd like you to do that with me this morning. You might say, well, I don't have a lot of doubts. You will, and if you don't, there are times. Here's the process. Take the journey with me. What kind of journey should we take in order to come to a conclusion that I want to absolutely serve him or I absolutely don't want to serve him? This is not a matter of, do I do want, want to do a little bit of it? Because the Lord doesn't accept that, that means you absolutely are not going to serve Him. So here's where I begin in those early morning hours when I'm thinking this way. Does God exist? Well, does He? And I think of the alternatives. Let's see. One day, hydrogen got all excited, blew up, and 15 billion years later, here we are. Whoa, man, that's a good one. <laughs> I, that takes a whole lot more faith than I have. I don't know. Somebody says, you don't believe in the Big Bang? Of course I do. I just believe in a big banger. Somebody had to bang it. <laughs> Somebody had to made it explode. Something had made it happen. And I think about what God has asked me to believe in. Why? 
One of the most interesting things about God is he never has said, he never has said, well, you know, you just got to have faith. That's a bunch of baloney. He did not say that. He said, let me give you some evidence for my existence. Let me show you evidence that I am here. He's never said, just believe this, just because somebody said so, or you read it in a book. No, he said, let me give you some evidence. And the words, one of many evidences, but here's two that always come to my mind. The words that are given in Romans 1 and verse 20, I think is good. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it known to them. Missed a word there, sorry. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Here is God's first and foremost testimony. He says, look, I have made it clear that I'm there. My invisible qualities, my invisible attributes can be clearly seen, clearly believed, and clearly perceived by the things that have been made. I would make a guess that just about every one of you have one of those cute little smartphones in your pocket or in your purse. Nobody made that. There was an explosion in an apple orchard, and it created these beautiful apple iPhones. I love it. They all came from apples. You don't believe that because you saw design in it. Clearly, you saw a designer in what you saw. You know, a friend of mine that I study with every Monday morning, he said, you know what just brings me back? to knowing God exists every single time, is I think if evolution were true, how in the world could anybody believe the incredibleness of one day a human female and a human male evolved at exactly the same time with the perfect parts to their bodies to be able to continue and procreate billions of people after that. Just It has to happen at the exact same time. You know, you can't have a man evolved and then, whoops, he died before the female came along. And, you know, whoops, this. No, all together at once. And God says, just look around. I love the psalmist, Psalm 19, he said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night to night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the world, their words to the end of the world. How many times in the deserts of California riding a motorcycle all day, lay down in the sleeping bag and look up at the sky. It's pitch black as far as artificial light. And there are so many stars that you, it's almost like you can't see the black behind them. Probably don't see that around here much, do we? Doesn't happen a whole lot. What beauty. You've seen the pictures of 
our latest telescopes, you know, Hubble and that James one and all that stuff. Look it up. Just scroll through. Power and amazing power of God. Constantly, every day and every night, shouting out that He exists, that He is there. And the second thing, Jesus raised from the dead. If He didn't raise from the dead, His birth meant nothing. The celebrations that go on at this time of year mean nothing. Every day I celebrate that He came. But this is the greatest celebration concerning Jesus, His Son, concerning His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did Jesus raise? Well, that's a whole sermon in itself. It's a whole lesson in itself. Look at the evidences. But I think of a number of things as I'm laying there early morning and going through this in my mind. Why in the world would 12 men who did not even believe in him, believe in his resurrection or understand his resurrection, why would his brothers all who denied him and did not believe he was the Messiah, why when he appeared to them, Then they went out and they, every one of them, lived their lives for absolutely no reason at all if he didn't raise. Everyone gave up his life. Every single one of them laid down their life. Why did 3,000 people who had 50 days before shout out, crucify him on that day when he was proclaimed raised from the dead with an empty tomb and the witnesses standing there saying, we've spent 40 days with him. I thought about that early this morning. I thought 40 days, 40 days. Do you know how long 40 days is to hang out with somebody for 40 days? That's all the way from here into middle February, more. Every day he spent with them, eating, drinking, teaching them about the kingdom, preparing them for when he would ascend into heaven. It changed their lives. The four brothers who laughed and mocked him in John 7 turned and became great leaders and Christians and wrote books in the New Testament. Why else? Jesus raised from the dead and the greatest persecutor of them all, Saul of Tarsus, sees him on the road and changes his whole life and becomes the persecuted. Paul, you're out of your mind. He says, exactly. If I am mad, if I am crazy, I'm crazy for God. How does that happen? That is not normal. He raised from the dead. And then my mind goes to this. Is the Bible God's word? Is this really the word of God? Forty different men at certain, over 1,600 years, all writing and somehow, most of them not even knowing each other, put something together. The most beautiful, combined, intricate, woven together message that you could ever imagine. You say, I don't know that that's true. That's because you haven't spent any time with it. And the first thing I always think of when somebody says that, if you want to know it, read it. If you want to believe it, read it. 
can't miss it. I can't count. How, I've tried to count in my mind just then. How many years have I been reading the Bible? I don't know. 65? I don't know. Most amazing thing I could ever read. I cannot wait. I'm telling you absolute truth. Teresa knows it because she can't drag me out of my office. I cannot wait. Cannot wait to get in there and read more of it. So much I haven't discovered breaks my heart, kills me. It's so beautiful. The love of God to give everything up, to save just one person. If he only saved one person, he'd still do it. If there's only one person to die for, he'd still do it. That's what he did. Because he's trying, pleading, hoping, loving, dying so that one person, one more person would not live a life of their own and lose everything he prepared. Oh, it's just too wonderful. Somebody says, well, you're just trying to prove the Bible by the Bible. That's all you're doing. Read it and you'll understand and you'll believe it. You're proving the Bible by the Bible. Not either. Can you imagine if you said to me, if I told you that, uh, that you, don't, you don't believe in Julius Caesar, do you? You don't believe he lived, do you? What would you say? You'd say well, of course I believe Julius Caesar lived. How do you know? Do you know? Well, I read about him in books. Really? And if I handed you a book in which people who saw him lived next to him and testified that he really did live and really was a Caesar, would you then believe? Well, you say, well, of course. That's how I believe. That's all I'm offering. Quit looking at that book in front of you as a Bible. It's not a Bible. It's a collection of writings of people who were eyewitnesses to who he was and what he did, and they wrote about it. You believe 90% of the things you believe in your life are about people you read that were not eyewitnesses. And this is an eyewitness account. Eyewitness account. Were the gospel writers liars? Were they liars? How could liars write something that beautiful? I think C.S. Lewis is one who said, it would take more than a Jesus to make up a Jesus. Can you imagine making up a Jesus? It's one of those present-day cartoons. I, it's on TV. I never watched the whole thing or whatever. can't even think of what the name was. The guy was reading the Bible, and he says, well... It's one thing about this book. Everybody in it's bad except this one guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody in it's bad except this one guy. Who writes like that? Who presents that? And if they're liars, they were fools. 
They were fools for doing something that gave them absolutely no earthly benefit. No power, no prestige, no money, no anything. And they did it anyway. They testified over and again that Jesus lived, died, and was raised, and they, they were with him. Listen to John's words. Great Apostle John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made visible and we have seen it and we have testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest, visible to us. John said, why would you believe anything else We saw him, we heard him, we handled him, we touched him. He is the word of life. They are the eyewitnesses. And over and again, Peter says it, Paul says it, Luke says it. Over and again, they proclaim the eyewitnesses. This is a record of those who were with him. And you know, same goes for you, Christian, and me, Christian. Are you drifting? Lost your zeal? Questioning the purpose of all this? Don't look around at somebody else to come along and convince you and motivate you. You. You have the job to do that. Not one person can do it for you. I remember plainly living in sin and sitting down by myself one day and saying, are you out of your mind, you dum-dum? Picked up God's Word and I opened to Matthew. And I started to read about the great Savior. And the longer I read and the more I read, the more I fell in love with Him. He saved me from an awful life. You have to do it. You have to. Don't turn around and say, somebody need to prove it to me. Oh, come on is everywhere. Jesus left it for us to discover it, but you have to search. You have to strive. It is difficult. It is hard. And once I've gotten this far in my reasoning, then I start thinking about those things. What did Jesus come to the earth for? Why is He here? What did He spend that time for? Why did He die? Why did He go through all that? And the reason is clearly so that He would warn us that he, we would not lose what He had provided for us. And as I'm thinking about that, you know what goes to my mind? The next thing that comes to mind is, there is no end to me. There is no end to us. Oh, what I'd like to choose it the other way. 
Oh, would I have liked to have thought in my mind that you're just like going to be like the dog Rover, dead all over when you It's just going to be over. You know, you're just going to live and then you're going to die and that's it. And if you didn't make it, well, so what? Because it's gone. There is no end to us. Oh my. That reality shakes me every time I think of it. I can't snap my finger and say it's over. I can't commit suicide and say I'm done. There is no end to us. He made us in His image. In the image of God made He them. If there is no end, I need to think about the choice I need to make. Jesus said these words, I tell you, my friends, can you just imagine Him saying this? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know, you may read that and think about the hell part of it. You know what, I read that and I think about there's something after dying. You still exist. You didn't escape. You still exist. Yes, Jesus said, I tell you, fear him. And so those words go through my mind. Now what, what is the criteria for whether we're in heaven or hell? What is the criteria of whether we're with him or not with him? And the criteria is simple. Have you sinned? Hmm. Yeah, I believe that's happened. Romans 23, Romans 3.23, God, Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, but you say, but you know, I, I live a good life and I'm good, nice to people and I, and I try to be moral and I try to good, yeah, 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 I know, except the problem is just before that verse, in chapter 3 of Romans, in verse 19 and 20, he says, By the works of the law, no flesh should be justified, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, keep it all you can keep it, but you still are going to find out that the law tells you you're a sinner. And there's only one way, only one way to escape that. You can't be good enough. That's too late. You need forgiveness. And I still need it, and you still need it. You need forgiveness. That's the way Jesus made it. And if he didn't make it that way, then why in the world did he spend the time to come down from heaven and down a cross? There is no reason that would make him a fool. No, he did it because there is no other way to be saved. And then someone says this, what kind of God forces us to obey Him? Well, you're like just saying it's either or. You either do it or you don't do it. What kind of God forces us to do that? He's not forcing you. He laid down His life so that you would make a proper decision. You can decide not to be with Him. That's okay. You can decide not to live with Him. You can decide you won't, don't want to be with Him. But let me remind you of something, as Jesus has reminded us over and again, like in the end of the chapter 5 of Matthew. Let me remind you, you have enjoyed the blessings of God today. 
God has poured his blessings out on you, giving you life and breath and good food and things to eat and relationships to enjoy and pleasures. He he has blessed you today. And one day he's going to inhale and suck all the blessings out of this world, out of these earthly pleasures. And then blessings will only be for those in his kingdom. You can choose that. You can choose the blessings that are in his kingdom. But one day there will be no blessings for those who do not want to be with him. I mean, after all, in the spiritual realm, we're either living with him or without him. What else do you think it would be without him? You've been living with the blessings that he has given all of this time. And when I get to that point, I think, do I really want to take the chance that there is no God or no eternity? I want to take that chance. That'd be the biggest bet of your life. That'd be the biggest loss if you're long. Jesus said in Luke 13, 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. The worst pain you could ever imagine is not the pain of flunking a final. It's flunking the final final. You don't want to flunk that final. And then what happens? Then my flesh says this. Oh, man, but I... I don't want to. That's what my flesh says. My flesh says, but I don't want to. I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. I'm enjoying not having the responsibility. There's all these responsibilities with being a Christian. Every day I've got to wake up, deny this, choose this, deny this, choose this. I want to give that up. I want to have a life in which I can just not have that guilt in my brain anymore and I can do what I want to do. Yeah, I understand that. I understand that. Yeah, that, that, that decision comes to mind at times. And then I think of the alternative which is unthinkable. What, what, is, what is God saying to me? Okay, I'll go to church. Okay, okay, leave me alone. I'll go to church. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what he's saying to you. Luke 14, 33, Jesus told thousands who were following him, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Now, you can't just have enough religion to make yourself miserable. You want to give your life up for him, and you can't be disciple otherwise. That's the problem. We're back to the challenge of Felix and the change that has to be made. But here is the biggest, hardest problem. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like doing it when I'm in that condition when I've been living in the flesh, when I've been living for my pleasures, when I've been doing what I want to do, I don't feel like changing it. That's right. That's what the flesh says. And here's Jesus' answer. Okay, this is, this is really monumental. This is really complicated. Here's his answer. And I know it's going to be kooky for you. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On count of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I would have expected for the Lord to say, look, we need to get you in psychotherapy for a while to kind of help your mind want to serve the Lord. And he says, no, here's how you do this. Stop it. You have to stop doing it. And then you have to replace it. Put on the new self. Replace it. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You can enjoy the image of his creator. I remember, I think it was Chuck Swindoll. I was reading one of his books, and he said, act yourself into a new way of feeling. That's exactly what God did. There's no magic to it. It's not going to land on you. You're going to be walking down the street and all of a sudden, oh, I want to serve the Lord. It's not the way it's going to work. It's going to be tough sweat and tears. It's going to be a challenge. And every day it's going to be a challenge. It gets better. It gets better because you're going to act yourself into a new way of feeling. I've told some of you this. I loved it. I was talking to my neighbor a few years ago about serving the Lord and about what he ought to do. And he's, ah, my parents made me go to church. And I said, when I get out of the house, I'll never go again. I said, do you take a bath? Oh, sure. I bet they made you do it in the beginning, didn't they? Yeah. Pretty dumb argument, isn't it? Yeah. I always thought it was funny, you know, you're trying to get a seven-year-old into a bathtub, into the shower. By age 13, you can't get them out. You know? Goodness. Act yourself into a new way of feeling. God said, prove me. Romans 12, prove me and see exactly. He's got the better. He has got what we really need. But remember, God does not want obedience out of fear. That's a starting point. Fear's a good motivation. But he wants a love relationship, not simply a fear relationship. He's drawing us to him. He is looking forward to the marriage of the bride, us, to the Lamb. It's a love relationship. And the more we know him, the more we will love him. You know, he's a sure thing. When you know, when you learn about Jesus, when you keep learning about Jesus, He's a sure thing. He's lovable. In this life, we go, eh, I could never be married to that. <laughs> I just couldn't. There's this flaw and that flaw, yeah. It's a wonder we're even married to anybody, isn't it? But with Jesus, He's the perfect. He's the sure thing. You cannot help but love Him. If you will bother to get to know him, that's what he's looking for. Not just obeying rules. He wants you to love him, learn about him, and love him. That's what he desires. And if you choose to live as you please, here's my final exhortation to you. Here's the final thing. If you choose to live as you please, think of where that's headed. Please think of where that's headed. This is what I think about at 5 a.m. This is what I think about. Where is that headed if I choose that? The best of what come, comes is temporary pleasure. That's the best of what comes, because God made it that way. He didn't make it so it would be go on and on and on. 
And there will be consequences. Sin always has consequences. Choosing other than God always has consequences. Even if you're not choosing immorality, you're just choosing to do what you want to do. It always has consequences. He made it that way because he's trying to get you to turn to the best of the best that doesn't have bad consequences. And pleasure will become a drug. Oh, please hear that. That's what turned me around. I said, wait a minute. Every day, in order to get the same amount of pleasure, I have to do worse and worse. Pleasure becomes a drug. You become a slave. Peter said it. You become it. You become a slave. You're a slave. You think you've made yourself free. You have not. And life will still have the problems and the trials and the heartaches because that's the way God made it. He wants you to look up. He wants you to look where there are no trials and no heartaches and no problems. And not only that, not just this temporary period of time, but for eternity living in his house with him. And a perfect, beautiful new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Yes, that's exactly right. Here's what God offers. In your presence, the psalmist said, in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what you've wanted. That's what you've wanted all your life. You've wanted the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. It's in the Father's house. So what's your choice? That's what I say to myself at 5 a.m. So what's your choice? And I get up and continue to serve God. That's been my process for a lot of years. Anytime the little devil jumps up on one side of my shoulder, no matter what it is, I start with that process. And it leads me right back to, there's only one king, there's only one glory, there's only one creator, and there's only one good, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you need to make a change and you think we could help you, we'd be glad to do that. If you never came to Christ, you've never immersed in water for the remission of your sins, to have Jesus cleanse you, cleanse you clean, start you on a path to glory. We can do that. You can do that this morning. Just let it be known. All together we stand and what we sing.